so much of the good stuff happening in our communities around us is somehow breaking a law. People having urban farms in their front yards might be breaking the law. People having community gathering events and teaching classes in their backyards might be breaking the law. People doing home-based uh, mask manufacture is breaking the law in multiple ways. A friend of ours from Movement Generation, Gopal Dayaneni, tends to say, if it's the right thing to do, you have every right to do it. And in the meantime, we're doing the legal work. This is Frontiers of Commoning with David Bollier. Welcome to another episode of Frontiers of Commoning. My guest today is Janelle Orsi, who I regard as one of the most creative progressive lawyers that I've met, and I've met quite a few in my time. Janelle is the co-founder and executive director of the Sustainable Economies Law Center, an Oakland-based team of 13 lawyers and a full staff of 19 people. And they're constantly trying to find ways to support commoning and cooperative endeavors in a legal system that's generally designed for other purposes. I'm excited to have Janelle on the podcast today because she's behind so many daring projects that are opening up new vistas of action through law. These include expanding the capabilities of cooperatives, land trusts, shared housing, and local currencies, among other things. It includes finding ways to remake the so-called sharing economy so that it's more socially constructive and cooperative and not extractive in the style of, say, Uber and Airbnb. The American Bar Association has called Janelle a legal rebel because she's focused on what they say, remaking the legal profession through the power of innovation. This includes making the legal profession itself more open, inclusive, and accessible by, for example, allowing people to become attorneys without having to go through law school and instead through apprenticeships just as Abe Lincoln did. There's even a website like Lincoln.org for more. Janelle, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I'd like to just try to look at the wide variety of things you've been involved with, but maybe we should start with you telling me how you decided that a Sustainable Economies Law Center was necessary and how you went about getting it going. Thank you so much, David. I have been a lawyer now, I think, for 13 years. It's one of those things where I start to lose count. But in law school, I was really focused on juvenile justice related issues, having recently been a youth myself at that age and having spent a lot of time with young people and after school programs in the juvenile justice system. I was just really focused on the experience of youth and the rights of youth. And But roughly two-thirds of the way through law school, I got really disillusioned with trying to fight the system, basically, and knowing that I was fighting within an unjust system that was just going to, that was never really going to make progress or change the fundamental outlook for young people in this society. And so I really shifted gears and I said, okay, what is, what's the kind of world that's actually going to sustain young people and give them good livelihoods and good housing and help them feel supportive or supportive? And at the time, I was living in a co-housing community, a kind of a small co-housing community in Berkeley with four households. My neighbors and I shared meals. We shared laundry facilities. Some of our neighbors shared cars. And the theme of sharing kind of came to me as something that felt could really do a lot to change the world. And I got in my head that I wanted to be a sharing lawyer because I, when I started thinking about, well, what is it that people would need to share more? They would need agreements with each other. They would need to form organizations like cooperatives and other kinds of nonprofits to create, say, community gardens or worker-owned businesses. And so I figured I could probably dedicate my career to helping people share. And I started a law practice in 2008 
and the focus of it was sharing. And for a couple years, I had private clients that were mostly co-housing communities and community gardens and worker cooperatives. And it was great, except for that time and time again, my clients were running up against legal barriers, things that would basically apply laws to them that really made no sense in the context of a cooperative arrangement. So worker cooperatives having employment laws apply when the workers are both the boss and the employee. Housing cooperatives that had both landlord and tenant law apply. And just time and time again, it felt like the legal system is not designed to help people cooperate and share. And I used to get together and have coffee with another lawyer who was having the same kind of headaches with her clients, Jenny Casson. And just after enough coffee one day, we said, you know, we should start doing research on this recruit some law students, teach workshops on some of the problems, maybe start trying to change some laws. And we gave it a name, Sustainable Economies Law Center. And once you give something a name, it sort of starts to take on a life of its own. People were gravitating to us. It was a volunteer effort for maybe the first three years. And then we got some funding and here we are. And we're almost 11 years old now. So you were started in roughly 2010 then? At, right at the end of 2009. Yeah. I see. I see. Mm -hmm. And how does one begin to well, you were not a standard law practice. You were a center that was trying to, I assume, deal with some of these issues in a more collective or policy-based way, as opposed to one-off clients. Mm -hmm. We we have a lot of different strategies at this point. Clients end up being really important to us because that's really the only way we learn at an intimate level what are the issues that people are facing and even the challenges of organizational culture and how that interacts with legal structure. So we have a walk-in legal advice clinic where we've now advised over 1,500 grassroots groups and cooperatives, and that has given us exposure to a lot of what's happening and emerging in communities. And then we tend to take a handful of clients every year and just really go deep with them. And then in doing so, we realize, okay, there, there are some laws we need to change here. And so we engage in policy efforts that feel like they could be potentially impactful or open up doors. We help legalize the sale of homemade food in California. We made it possible for cooperatives to raise capital by selling membership shares for up to $1,000 per person. We've done other advocacy to reduce barriers to cooperative housing models. And so we, we've done that over the years and also just done a lot of education and coalition building with groups around the country who are now taking on similar policy efforts. So, I mean, I'm, I've been so excited about your work because coming from a commons perspective, which of course overlaps with your work, the focus of law is generally on individual property rights, individual rights, market transactions and state power and law. And it really doesn't philosophically or operationally have much space for collective action or commoning. And just curious your reflections or thoughts on that issue, because it seems that so much of your work is grappling with that central conundrum that the law is made for a different purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the end, so many of the organizations I've worked with, like say the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, People Power Solar Cooperative, these are large community-based cooperatives here in Oakland, California. What I find really makes them work is not the legal structures and the laws that apply to them, but the culture that people build internally. And it's really it's a highly relational culture. It's a culture where people care for each other, want to include each other, support one another. And when they end up having to comply with laws, like what would be an example? Well, the landlord-tenant laws, for example, if a group of people coming together to share a house that's owned by the cooperative has to, if they have to comply with landlord-tenant laws, it means that they are subject to rent control. And it means that they can't collectively come together and problem solve 
around financial issues and costs. They can't come together and say, hey, let's put in more money this month so we can fix the property because rent controls would rent control would prevent them from putting in more money. So there is this constant clash with the legal system that's basically it views people as atomized, boundaried individuals in conflict with each other. And when they try to collaborate, it's like they can't they can't do so because the law is keeping them separate. So many of your works are trying to much of your work is trying to find either workarounds at an individual contractual or cooperative law level, or occasionally through policy advocacy and actual changing the law or regulations. Is that pretty much how you work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we did a lot of policy advocacy early on and then realized that it's an uphill battle until you have a critical mass of examples in the community of what you're trying to create. So until you have a critical mass of worker cooperatives, it's hard to get governments to remove barriers to cooperatives or to give incentives to them. And so in the meantime, we work within the, the existing legal system as uncomfortable as it can be. And I would say we do a lot of legal contortions or legal hacks, and sometimes it's exhausting to have to, uh, say, jump through all the hoops to comply with securities laws just so that people can pool money with each other. But it's worth it because it's helping to uncover the problems of the legal system. It's helping people to start putting into practice and experiencing what is it like to be in a cooperative with others. And the more that people start to practice that and the more it spreads, I think it's going to be easier to actually change the laws. But we spend a lot of time taking existing legal structures like nonprofit corporation, cooperative corporations, and then we really customize the structure. Like the bylaws will look like no other bylaws you've seen in this Meaning they tried to achieve what the standard boilerplate doesn't do. The standard boilerplate tends to really focus on, say, a board of directors as a center of power. I guess, yeah, most organizations just kind of, there's a standard structure. It tends to be hierarchical. One way to describe what it is we do with bylaws is apply a few different principles and try to build it into the legal structure. And one of those is to spread power among the people who are involved, uh, as opposed to concentrating it with a board of directors or a staff. Another is to try to spread wealth or the material benefits of the entity, which tends to mean putting a cap on any profits that anyone can extract. It means putting a cap on salaries. like you will rarely see a set of bylaws that built into the bylaws puts a cap on how much people can make as far as salaries. And we also do all kinds of things to prevent the entity from ever being sold. So in California, you can form a cooperative corporation to benefit its members and the community, but there's nothing to prevent the members and the board of directors under the law from just voting to sell the cooperative or sell its assets. And so as soon as you create something as a value, there's the threat that some entity or person with a lot of money will want to come and swallow it up. And so we make it very hard to decide to sell the cooperative. We build into the bylaws that things can't be sold. We have outside parties with veto power over sale of assets. We have board seats that are appointed by area nonprofit organizations. So we're just trying to keep these entities accountable to the community in every way possible and then build high levels of engagement by the community. Like we actually put that in the bylaws. And by the way, the bylaws of say the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, which is the client that I probably spend the most time working with, they're cartoon bylaws and they're highly readable. I know of an eight-year-old who asked his mom to read the bylaws to him. So it also means that the roughly, I think there's about 200 or 250 members right now. It means that the members can really get a handle on what this cooperative is and how it works and what it means to them. 
Well, I want to circle back to your use of cartoons to demystify the law, but first, why don't you say a few words about the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative in the first place, its mission, its goal, and why you consider it kind of a vanguard uh, enterprise? Yeah, so the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative came about roughly four years ago, or four years ago, we were advising a lot of clients who were wanting to create housing together or buy properties together. And when those clients would come to us, we would talk through the common options, which include community land trusts. And community land trusts are almost always 501c3 nonprofit charities. And so for a lot of people, intuitively, if they're trying to create housing for themselves, a charitable model doesn't make sense. They're not trying to create housing for other people who need it. It's for themselves. So we needed a mutual aid model, which is what cooperatives are designed for. They're designed for people helping themselves. So we said we, we need to look at cooperative models, but the cooperative models that were out there tend to be highly regulated because a lot of cooperatives function very much like condominiums. People buy a condominium or they buy a cooperative share, and it's very much like buying buying a house with all the same financial rights, with the presumption that you can get a mortgage and sell it on the speculative market and the thing that we wanted to do is just take it off the speculative market entirely. We didn't just use a cooperative structure. We created East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative to be an umbrella for many real estate projects in the community. The cooperative is designed to serve as an anchor to prevent things from getting sold into the speculative market. The legal relationship between individuals and the cooperative is technically that of landlord-tenant, not like a condominium purchaser. In general, we just said we need more things in the ecosystem of options for communities and people gravitate to it quite naturally. And how does the system prevent appreciated assets from being sold to the market? How do you decommodify it? We have, as I mentioned, we built a lot of things into the bylaws. There are provisions that say properties can't be sold. And then there's provisions that say this provision of the bylaws cannot be changed without the approval of this group of 13 people. You know, so there's a lot of, there would be so many hoops to jump through in order to sell something. And then the bylaws say if it's sold, it has to be sold to a nonprofit land trust or to a tribe or to a similar cooperative. It can't be for more than 75% of market value. So there's all kinds of things to basically disincentivize sale. If, if the cooperative ends up liquidating its assets, the members will get a small payout, but then the rest of the assets will go to another entity. So there's no individual who's greedily trying to capitalize off of it. And then we're even thinking we need more tools. So one thing we developed and we wrote a, a law journal art about it recently is something called a housing justice easement. So it would allow the cooperative to own a property, but then grant an easement to a community land trust that gives the land trust the ability to enforce caps on rent, to enforce caps on sale price, to ensure perhaps that the housing is provided to people of low to moderate income. Easements haven't been used for that purpose that we know of, but we realize that might actually be just adding another layer of protection on to keep things out of the speculative so, market. So essentially kind of legal hacks to maybe insulate real estate assets from the speculative market, which of course is out of control in the Bay Area. Yeah, it really is. And there, there's just so much gravitational pull for any any community that's struggling. It would be so tempting to just like sell off one of these properties and cash in on it. But it takes away the use value. The real value of the property is that people are able to use it and share it. And that's the point is to keep that for the community. Well, talk about another aspect of this. I've found in my own studies that it's not just the legal structures. You need the social community and culture to be a part of this. And so it's not as if you can just uh, wash your hands and say, well, we solved that. 
because it is the community. Tell me how the community that is involved with the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative gives it a, a, a mission and sense of uh, stability. Yeah, I think that's where that is the key ingredient is the people, their relationships with each other, the culture they build, their practices. The cooperative used to have before COVID events every week, sometimes multiple times per week, bringing community members together to vision, uh, to think about potential properties to bring into the cooperative, to just talk more broadly about issues. There were book clubs, there was a black economics salon. And, um, and, and by the way, in the context of Oakland, Oakland used to be roughly 50% African-American and now it's more like 23%. There's been rapid displacement. And so a lot, of the, a lot of the members and leaders in the cooperative are from the black community. And so that's a lot of the focus. There's um, you know, people coming together around sustaining local culture, sustaining relationships with each other in preventing further displacement. So people are very motivated to be involved and there are just high levels of engagement and which have now moved online. Uh, but we also really considered what's the role of the staff of the cooperative? Because the risk is if you have employees of the cooperative who end up handling a lot of the transactional and technical details of running the cooperative, what, what could end up happening is a kind of a separation between the staff and the community that it's really meant to serve. And so inherent in the model is that the staff have roughly equitable pay or that they determine the pay with each other using a democratic process and that, um, that staff have roughly equal decision-making power and that the power be spread throughout the organization so that basically each staff person has a lot of autonomy to say, connect with a community group and hear that the community group has a vision to shepherd a property into the cooperative and that staff person has the power to collaborate with them and make it happen. So removing a lot of the clunky old hierarchies within the staff and then uh, in order to basically unleash a lot more community connection and intrinsic motivation to build alongside communities. Well, some of the skeptics of that might say, well, how do you assure accountability and performance when you have so much distributed power? What's the answer that you would have or that the co-op would have? Fortunately, I've been able to experience this a good deal myself in the last eight years because Sustainable Economies Law Center, from the moment we started hiring staff, we all had equal pay. We adopted decision-making processes and operational processes that really spread power throughout the organization and gave everyone uh, the opportunity to bring ideas and initiatives to the organization. And it, it is very relationship-based and feedback-based. And for us, it's, it's worked for eight, eight years. And of course, there's all kinds of room for improvement. But even though my title is executive director, I don't on paper have any more power than anybody else in the organization. So it does mean that basically if I have an idea or want to do something, I need to bring it to staff and get feedback from coworkers and try to integrate that feedback before I can do things. And so there's just a high level of collaboration and feedback that keeps us all accountable. And now that I've practiced it for eight years, I realize it can work so well. And I know that I can imagine it going bad if say interpersonal conflict started to spiral out of control, but then we've adopted all kinds of practices to prevent that from happening and have so far been able to and it's just it's just a much better way to live and work and relate to coworkers. so that's why I know it's possible in I these mean, other organizations. It's, it's always so heartening to hear stories like that because there's such skepticism that a community of trust and relationships can function well but of course 
that's the key to unleashing a lot of creative potential initiative. And you might even say efficiency too. It's very inefficient to have a hierarchy and command and control. It's very efficient and flexible to have that kind of trust-based community. And, but it's, really it's counterintuitive to the modern way of management because you think you have to manage as opposed to develop a community. Mm-hmm. It's so true. But I I was uh, having some insights recently just about how much our work is driven by intrinsic motivation and by affection for each other as coworkers, affection for the clients that we work with. And I know in one of your prior podcasts with Neera Singh, you talked about the two of you talked about the role of affection in stewarding forests in India. And it just, it's a, it's kind of a renewable source of energy. Like yesterday I was petting my neighbor's dog and I was just like, I could just sit and pet this dog forever. But I couldn't sit and pet a rock forever. It's just like you realize affection is this pool of energy that you can almost draw from um, eternally. And if that's what's driving your work, then it just, everything works so much better. But if what's driving your work is a feeling of, I have to do this, or there's a level of coercion, or if there's resentment of others that you're working with, that just sucks the life right out of everything. And so the culture of the organization, some of the rituals we engage in that keep us connected, for example, at least once a meet, well, once a month, it used to be once a week, we'd have an all staff meeting that began with just people sharing what's good in their lives and also what's not so good. So highs and lows, and you just get to know people in a more multifaceted way. And we have another set of rituals. We just started a project called the Radical Real Estate Law School. And three, two of my coworkers and I did a big national search and brought in four activists who now work for us as coworkers or work with us as coworkers, and they're becoming lawyers without going to law school while focusing on transforming our society's relationship to land and housing. And we start our weekly meetings with real estate stories, or which just span from like people's ancestral real estate connections or land relationships to everyday interactions with neighbors and landlords, just the very multifaceted relationships we have with real estate. But we have these stories every week, which just these are just the kind of rituals that keep us motivated. Well, you, you raise, first of all, let's circle back to the radical real estate law school. I mean, the idea itself is kind of startling. Who teaches radical real estate? What do you consider radical real estate law? Well, since the word radical means of the roots, getting back to our root relationship to land and housing, the root is definitely not one of ownership and dominion over land. It's very much more of a uh, people living and working in relationship with each other and in relationship to land in a much more organic and dynamic way. And so radical real estate to us means working toward the decommodification of land, meaning getting it off the speculative market, which then means, okay, well, if the highest bidders no longer determine the future of real estate, then who does? And then then we have this whole other set of questions of like how to build community and deepen connections and create participatory systems for for managing real estate of all kinds and in all places. And so radical real estate means building communities of people who work together in so many different formations all over our community to steward land. Among your four apprentice attorneys, 
what types of real estate law are you focused on? I assume it's not just in the Bay Area urban real estate. There's perhaps, do you have agricultural? And t tell me about your agricultural and farmland related sure. uh, real estate and perhaps any Native American real estate law that you might be doing. Yeah, I'll try to without, since we're lawyers and we have to maintain confidentiality, I'll try to give you a high level summary of some of the clients we're working with now. Um, it's all very motivating. But we ended up bringing in two apprentices who have a deep connection to and a lot of motivation around farmland and two who are very motivated by housing issues and were pre previously tenant organizers. And so we have a good mix. Right now we have a client that's a group of people of color, Black and Indigenous people who are working to acquire land and return it to Indigenous forms of stewardship, and that will also include a center for people to gather and learn. And so we're working with them on legal structure uh, to set that up and, and make sure that that land will be protected in perpetuity. And we'll be working with them on governance structure to to ensure high levels of community engagement. We're working with another land trust that's working on ret returning land to indigenous stewardship. We're working with a primarily black housing cooperative that's trying to retain its autonomy, even though it needs to raise a lot of capital and do a lot of renovations. So just helping uh, engage members and thinking through those possibilities. Uh, you know, I'm struck with the number of different realms that you're you have a finger in the pie in, from the co-op world to real estate to you know agricultural land and Native Americans. How do you obviously each of those constituencies have certain legal capacities of their own? How do you decide what your role is, what your special role, your special contribution that you can make uh, to those forms of law? Well, we really look for clients that we feel are doing something really outside of the dominant system, decommodifying, democratizing, there's a lot of kind of criteria. Uh, we particularly look for people of color-led initiatives. And then our role is to really help them find a legal structure that's gonna help them retain their vision in, a in the long term and not fall victim to the pressures of the dominant system or of laws and regulations that are ill-structured for what they're doing. Yeah, but it really, it ends up turning us into a rather eclectic organization because you can't just look at how is land owned. You need to look at, well, how is it governed? And you also need to look at what's happening on that land. So if it's a farm, the conventional farming structure of you know, bosses and farm laborers doesn't work. We need people who have a strong connection to the land, who have power to really steward it, who have affection for the land, which means at the moment we have maybe three or four clients that are worker-owned farms, so worker cooperatives in the farming sector, of which there are not very many, but we really want to help spread that model. And then we also think about the financing structures quite a bit because any real estate or enterprise that receives conventional financing is usually going to have so many strings attached that it can't do many of the things it wants to do. Conventional mortgages make it very challenging to decommodify land because the lender wants to be able to just sell it and cash in. So we have a whole, we have a lot of projects at the Law Center focused on tapping different pools of capital that are less extractive, um, like program related investments from foundations or people's retirement savings to allow for longer term lending. And then we help clients comply with securities laws in order to be able to receive that capital. And so we end up thinking about 
workplace governance and labor, we think about financing, we think about real estate, and all of these things have to come together in order to make the whole thing work. And if, if you really don't, if you don't address one of those, the whole system is a little bit at risk. Well, I'm reminded your conversation while it's talking about very specific operational things, it really adds up to what's in your website about your theory of change. And I'll, let me just read from that because I, I think it helps summarize maybe why you're involved in so many eclectic projects. Neither our communities nor our ecosystems are well served by an economic system that incentivizes perpetual growth, wealth concentration, and the exploitation of land and people. Communities everywhere are responding to these converging economic and ecological crises with a grassroots transformation of our economy that's rapidly relocalizing production, reducing resource consumption, and rebuilding the relationships that make our communities thrive. And I loved that statement as a rather succinct way of maybe the North Stars that guide your choices of potential clients, because it, it might seem disconnected and eclectic, but from that prism, you sort of see, oh, you're trying to these various experiments to develop a different type of society, maybe even a one that escapes the shackles of a lot of capitalist norms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really looking for clients that are, and they're very courageous people who are surrendering into the arms of each other, basically, and and cutting ties with a lot of the systems that would normally give them a sense of economic security, like home ownership or financial savings or um, just high salary workplaces. And so I, I guess I learned the lesson the hard way early on in my career working with co-housing communities. Just because something is co-housing doesn't mean it's yet thinking outside of the conventional marketplace. And so a group of people might come together, purchase land and housing together with the intention of having a wonderful community together. Like they, they can picture it just being a wonderful place to live, but they also still picture at some point cashing in on their share or cashing in on the property and then living off the money that they get from that. And when you mix the profit incentive with the community building, they really clash. There's so much push and pull. And I realized, well, I watched a lot of communities fall apart in conflict, usually over these kinds of financial tensions. And I realized you, you really have to take the money piece out because it really it confuses people and it it makes them forget why they're there and what makes them happy as humans. And so we're one of the things that's giving me a lot of hope right now is that right after COVID hit, groups of people around the U.S. started forming mutual aid networks. And I believe there's more than a thousand now listed on mutualaidhub.org, which kind of has a map of them. But these mutual aid networks are people coming together in communities, sometimes groups of strangers who are just giving each other money or running errands for each other. And this kind of like, this is, it's a kind of a surrender into recognizing that people can be there to hold each other up if we just let them and if we just start taking part in that and building that that kind of culture. And so the mutual aid culture that's emerged around COVID is the kind of thing that's really going to reinforce the potential for people to basically step out of that dominant system. It seems that a lot of the challenge is devising the institutional structures and the legal structures to support that, as opposed to it simply being a cultural spasm that disappears when the crisis disappears or simply can't hold itself together because it doesn't have the recognition or the support. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've been thinking about 
we've been thinking of it in terms of first wave and second wave needs of the mutual aid movement. So when the mutual aid movement started, groups reached out to us from all over the country seeking legal support to understand uh, particularly tax issues and liability issues, uh, particularly where a lot of money was flowing. And then we realized that if we can if we can really get ourselves organized, the thousand plus mutual aid networks that have emerged around the country could start to serve functions that conventional for-profit businesses serve, like lending and insurance. And this really happened during the depression, a similar mutual aid movement emerged and a lot of mutual financial, I guess you can call them financial services, but basically people supporting each other through these networks emerged, but at the time there were much fewer regulations. So you're trying to navigate that territory to make it more both legally possible and maybe operationally possible for them to pool resources for self-financing? Is that what you're trying exactly. to do? Exactly. Yeah. So if a group of people wants to use the mutual aid network that they've, that they've started and each put in an amount of money that could then be used uh, to help people um, who have a catastrophic loss, it's basically a form of community insurance but it's also subject to all these regulations. And so our hope is probably in 2021 to start delving more deeply into the financial regulations because there's so much potential if we can take these communities to the next level to help people step out of the conventional commercial systems. Well, that's fascinating because I've just been involved with some conversations with people in the Netherlands where the government is exploring how they can think of different commons-based forms of social security that are not necessarily monetized, although money might play a part of it. Well, for the most part, for conventional bureaucracy and politics, it doesn't make sense. You have a one-size-fits-all monetary benefit, and it's like money from the sky, from the state, and it's not community administered or controlled and people's sense of belonging or mutual commitment are not there. This whole movement of the mutual aid world is suggesting there's a different way to provide social security. And yes, it could use state support. Maybe we can start by clearing up the laws that impede it. And the state has its own interest, should have its own interest in leveraging this capacity instead of impeding it or ignoring it. It really should. Yeah. And, you know, these regulations, they need to be changed for cooperatives and mutual arrangements. But the reason these regulations exist is to prevent people from losing money. In theory, that's why they exist, right? To protect everyday consumers from losing money in these kinds of pooled arrangements. But if the government itself stepped in to secure these kinds of relationships, much in the same way the government secures bank deposits through FDIC insurance, we could basically remove a lot of the risks that communities are taking and allow them to pool their resources and maximize them in this way. I recently read a book by Michael Schumann, the, the local uh, development expert, uh, Put Your Money Where Your Life Is. And it's about the difficulties of investing locally while Wall Street has a hammerlock on most capital. And it strikes me as a huge uh, legal and infrastructure challenge to open up the plumbing to let capital flow into localities. And it seems that this is part of that whole conversation. Yes, it is. And we have been also focusing on a key piece. We actually partnered with Michael Schumann and another organization called Lift Economy. And we created a project called The Next Egg, kind of like the nest egg, but next. 
So the nextegg.org is a project to help people tap into existing retirement savings or start new savings plans that give them as much control as possible over that money so that they can invest it in their local community. And so I, I now have a 401k plan for which I am the trustee and the administrator. So I've put about $5,000 in a local bank and I'm the one who writes the checks to invest it. So that gives me a lot of control and I'm able to invest in things like the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. But yeah, there was, for us to be able to get to this point, we had to, uh, 401k law and retirement savings law is just the stickiest, ickiest body of law, but um, but it is what's necessary to start unleashing well, apart resources. Well, apart from the hero heroic efforts of you and your colleagues, what partners do you see for helping them open this up more? Because it seems that you know, you're going to have to prevail upon state and federal legislatures to make this go. How do you start to tear the fabric of the existing structure, open it up to these kind of innovations? Lately, I've been thinking a lot about getting certain things to a critical mass. So let's imagine that I, if I had $100,000 in my retirement savings that I wanted to invest locally, I would not really know where to put it. But if there were a critical mass of organizations and cooperatives that were ready to receive large amounts of capital and put it to use in our local communities and give me a relatively secure sense of getting my money back, then I could really unleash that onto communities. But there's not a critical mass yet. And so one of our projects is to think about how could we enable or get at least like 10 to 15 cooperatives or nonprofits around the US to do a securities offering that would allow them to raise perhaps up to $50 million on an ongoing basis from every day as in like non-accredited, non-wealthy investors that would create a critical massive investment opportunities for people to start moving their money. But until there's not enough places to move that money to, the money's not going to move. So we, we're working on unleashing the retirement savings while building up a critical mass of organizations ready to deploy that money. But there's, it's like, yeah, neither one is quite ready yet. It sort of reminds me of the climate change divestment and reinvestment. There's not the vehicles for reinvesting right now, or it's very difficult. And so in some ways, building the infrastructures to make this happen is what needs to occur to open up the possibilities. Yeah. And really, to make it happen now, it means that each of the organizations needs to jump through a lot of legal hoops and it's going to be painful but if we can just get a critical mass of them to do it and comply with federal securities laws and register as public companies it's doable it's just kind of painful but I think once we get to that point then we'll have leverage to go and change those laws and make it a lot easier for those to come after that's my hope you're perhaps a little more sanguine than I am about using conventional law and hacks to make it work because at a certain point, it almost seems like such a Rococo structure of duct tape and erector sets <laughs> that is it worth it? Can it really work? Uh, perhaps there's a role for civil disobedience or simply trying to do stuff on the side without the legal sanction. That's a rather heterodox or heretical uh, idea, but you sometimes have fantasies of trying to do this outside of the law. Yeah, and in fact, this is not my lawyer side speaking at the moment, but everyone should break the law. I mean, everything, so much of the good stuff happening in our communities around us is somehow breaking a law. People having urban farms in their front yards, 
might be breaking the law. People having community gathering events and teaching classes in their backyards might be breaking the law. People doing home-based uh, mask manufacture is breaking the law in multiple ways. But it's like, you kind of just have to do this. Now, as lawyers at the law center, it's not our role to tell people to do that. It's our role to help them figure out how to do it within the law. But I, I'm, I guess my hope is that many people are just gonna just go ahead and do what they know is right. Um, a friend of ours from Movement Generation, Gopal Dayaneni, tends to say, if it's the right thing to do, you have every right to do it. And <laughs> so much of the right thing to do, it is against the law. And I guess many of us just need to be courageous and do it because we know it's the right thing to do. And in the meantime, we're doing the, the legal work. That's kind of... Well, we, we have plenty of proof right now that working within the system has its distinct limits when it's been corrupted so much. And uh, I love some of the books like the book Property Outlaws, which describes how these kind of efforts to defiantly break property law have been precisely the catalyst for rethinking and expanding the way property law works. In some ways, you need these outside forces demonstrating the feasibility of it, as well as making the moral plea in a public, unapologetic way mm -hmm. uh, that this is what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I mean, I'm sort of here just brainstorming with you about the challenge of how to uh, try to move this agenda forward. And it's obviously a complex issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like we need to call for a stay on enforcement in many kinds of laws because what ends up happening is they get enforced selectively, particularly on communities of color. For example, zoning laws have really been weaponized in the city of Oakland. One person, African-American man who used to be on the city council, actually got tackled by the police and injured and arrested simply because he was in the planning department talking about a zoning issue. But the reality is zoning law is being violated all around us. And particularly with the Black Lives Matter movement and growing awareness of, of just racial injustice, it feels timely to say like, wait a minute, we really need to stop enforcing these laws because it ends up just reinforcing racism and harming communities of color. And so there might be an opportunity there to sort of tie well, this to the racial justice movement. I'd like to invite you to reflect on what lessons we might learn from Native Americans who don't have the legacy of Western law and it's some of its implicit assumptions about individual human beings and rights and state power and so forth, but it's more law that's socially embedded and socially enacted rather than formalistic and legalistic. Uh, is that something that is, has feasible lessons for us? us meaning well, modern Westerners? Mm -hmm. I would say the thing that I find the most informative these days in all of my work is reading books by Indigenous people, about Indigenous people, to just really let it sink into my consciousness, into my bones, that there's just a different way of of living together. There's a different way of thinking and providing for each other to relating to nature and the world around us. And my feeling is that the more we start to recognize that and really believe it and understand it, that the legal system needs to just step aside and allow it, allow it to happen. And I think there are autonomous or semi-autonomous communities around the world where uh, the government has just sort of stepped aside and said, oh, okay, it looks like you all are managing pretty well on your own. We're not going to intervene. And we need to recognize that more often, that there's just a place where the government can step out. And that's where there's certain pieces in place that show 
the conditions are being met for people actually taking care of each other and not causing harm. And so we have so much to learn from indigenous communities. There's a wonderful book, The Art of Not Being Governed by the social scientist James Scott, which is wonderful stories about people who deliberately try to escape the yoke of state power and its imperatives. And uh, it seems that we've seen how through mutual aid groups and various commons, how that self-organization is entirely possible. But you do need the protective space, protected spaces for that experimentation and social organization to occur. And it's a challenge to get to even to that place of mm. uh, the way, you know, Occupy Wall Street needed to find a vacant spot in a public space to be able to do some, some uh, prototyping like that. Mm-hmm. It really is challenging. Yeah. Well, I'd like you to just uh, tell me about your cartooning a bit, which is kind of an offbeat dimension here, but in other ways, a more serious way that you're trying to demystify law and make it more accessible. Tell me a little bit about how you got your cartooning talents into the law. My cartooning habit kind of started when I would find so many times I'd have conversations about people what I about what I felt was possible, but just trying to describe it in words just wouldn't work. And so I started turning to visuals and cartoons as just a way for us to start literally visualizing that another world is possible and other ways of relating are possible. And over time, I've realized it really, it breaks the ice with the law. The law can feel so heavy and gunky to people. And so it really helps people get curious about the law and feel like it's something they can engage with. Uh, But it also, cartoons have the convenient feature of bringing emotion and a little bit of humanity into things. And so bylaws that picture cartoon people having emotions, getting along with each other or being sad, or it just helps us feel more human as we interact with what could otherwise feel like very inhuman documents. And it also is, I feel like it's starting to create a new language. And this is actually this about your most recent book, Free, Fair and Alive, the way that you have really focused on the role of language, the words that we use right now to describe our economic activity, they just really limit our minds. If we use the word rent, if we use the word landlord, just all of these things, it puts us in a box with how we think about things. And so in the same way that you and Silke Heffrich have been really thinking through what's a different language that we could start to use in the commons to to get us to think differently, cartoons, I think, help people think differently. They think they help us think a little bit more as humans relating to humans rather than transactional beings, you know, transacting with each other. In some ways, sort of takes it out of this polemical or ideological realm and makes it sort of a practical everyday challenge to sort of, okay, let's let's just be human beings about this and try to figure it out. Because mm-hmm. so, at the end of the day, this is just humans figuring out how to do human things and the law should not feel separate from it. The law should feel very supportive and integrated with it. In your struggles in this area, tell me, I'd be curious to know what you're most proud of in terms of uh, a legal achievement, a legal innovation, and alternatively, what remaining big ideas or projects do you have in mind that you'd like to tackle that you haven't so far? Very good questions. I am really proud of what we've done with our own organization as far as the financial structure of having relatively equitable pay, uh, with having participatory governance, and it's always 
changing and we're always improving on it. And we've been able to take the lessons learned and share them with other groups. And now we have a project called the Nonprofit Democracy Network, which is a membership group of, I believe it's now more than 75 organizations and they have an online network where they share practices and knowledge. But there's just a growing number of change making or community organizations that are really rethinking how they're structured and how they're governed. And I feel like we helped catalyze a lot of thinking in that arena, but did so just through our own practice and learning. With regard to real estate, I feel that there's so much left to do, but we've already made a lot of progress that I feel really good about. Um, things like using tools like housing justice easements to start to remove land from the speculative market, uh, the creation of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative as a model to really activate the community to think differently about the land around them. And the more real estate work I do, the more I realize we need to rethink the title industry, the escrow industry, the finance industry, the real estate is just in a big entangled mess and it's I think it's going to be so much fun to rethink all of it and to collaborate with my colleagues at the Radical Real Estate Law School and to just come up with a whole new curriculum and set of practices around land and housing so that's what's ahead for me and us in the coming years is just really going deep around real estate law. Well Janelle I want to thank you for taking some time out to talk with us I'm really uh, impressed with the many uh, arenas in which you're trying to march forward and push forward. And uh, I wish you luck in these ongoing efforts. Thank you, David. And I do just have to say your frameworks and your guidance and your books have been so helpful along the way. I have to share, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but I was, I had your book opened recently while I was writing a legal document. And I just kind of kept going back and forth between your book and the document I was writing to just keep like questioning the language that I was using. And so these kinds of broader frameworks that you've been thinking about and the language you've been thinking about, it's really essential. And I'm so grateful for the work well, that you do. Thank you. I'm, I'm flattered. <laughs>